1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Evan Arcadas, your host, and today I am here with two amazing scholars. First, Dr. Thomas Berman, professor of history at the University of Notre Dame and the director of the Medieval Institute. And with him, Dr. Brian Katlos, professor of religious studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And the co director of the Mediterranean seminar to talk about their new book, The Sea in the Middle, The Mediterranean World, 650 to 1650, published in 2021 by the University of California Press. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show.
0: Good to be here. We're de- I'm, I'm happy to be here, delighted.
1: Thank you. I'm also very excited to, uh, speaking with you about your new book. I think August, 2022, Wait, it's when it was first put out and published. So very, very fresh. Um, I would like to start a conversation with, uh, you telling us a little bit about yourselves.
2: Uh, do you you want to go first? Yeah. Okay. I can go first. Uh, uh, I'm a professor of religious studies at uh, CU Boulder, but uh, uh, really uh, I'm, a, I'm a historian. And I did my training uh, like Tom and Mark at the University of Toronto at the uh, uh, Center for Medieval Studies there, which has a uh, well-deserved reputation uh, for uh, turning out, uh, extremely uh, well-trained scholars of the Middle Ages, particularly uh, people who are uh, able and accustomed to uh, working uh, hands-on with uh, unedited uh, sources in a variety of languages and coming from a number of traditions. Uh, I did all three of my degrees there, BA, MA, PhD, finishing in 2000. And uh, then I was away in Spain uh, with a doctoral fellowship and postdoc for uh, several years. Uh, There I completed my dissertation, which became my first book, uh, looking at Muslim minorities living under Christian rule in uh, Northern Spain from about 1100 to 1300 more or less. But I had developed by this time an interest in Mediterranean studies because I was also working on Christian minorities uh, in Fatimid Egypt uh, a little bit earlier, but more or less the same period. And what I saw was that contrary to sort of the accepted wisdom, which at that point uh, really emphasized the sort of the role of uh, uh, religious culture in shaping the experiences of uh, religious minorities living in diverse societies, I found that contrary to what I expected, the conditions which Christian and Jewish minorities in the Islamic world lived under and which in the same period, Muslim and Jewish minorities lived in the Christian world were actually really similar. And that got me thinking, well, if if these realities are not dictated necessarily by the particular religious culture of the dominant group, then there must be other factors at play we can control for religion. And that got me interested in looking at the sort of social and economic dynamics of these societies which were really similar. And the reason why they're similar is that they're both part of this sort of Mediterranean world, which has certain certain characteristics, uh, geographic, environmental, so on and so forth, that encouraged, in the Middle Ages, the development of uh, religiously diverse uh, societies, and which in which members of different ethno-religious groups, and particularly we usually talk about Christians, Muslims, and Jews, which we see often, as being sort of inherently in opposition, actually uh, were quite integrated, and that the episodes of uh, violence, sometimes catastrophic or cataclysmic, were actually kind of rare, in the sense that, you know, that wasn't the daily life that most people experienced. uh, But it was always in the background. So my work in the Mediterranean, as a scholar, has really been focused on trying to disentangle uh, how people think about themselves as individuals and as members of communities and how they see others, when that uh, contributes towards the establishment of what we might call positive relationships, of uh, you know, integrative relationships, and when often quite suddenly uh, the worm turns and people see their neighbors who only the other day they were celebrating a, a festival with suddenly as potentially mortal enemies. So that's that's in a nutshell. That's that's kind of that's kind of my work and where I'm coming from.
0: Well, I was uh, educated to start with at the university level at a small college in Washington State called Whitman College, um, and uh, I went from there after just a year uh, out uh, of uh, studying um, to the University of Toronto um, to the same institution that, 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 uh, um, uh, Brian did, uh, though I went there rather earlier. Uh, so I, I finished my degree in 1991. And from the beginning I was working, um, from, um, on, on trying to understand what happens, uh, in intellectual and cultural exchange, uh, between, especially Muslims and Christians, uh, in in the uh, mostly in the Iberian world. And uh, my dissertation and first book uh, focused on the Arabic-speaking Christians of Spain. They what are what are usually known as the Mozarabs, um, and uh, they're the sort of circulation of books and ideas among them. And uh, I. Uh, I argued that uh, what the evidence showed me was that these Mozarabs were very engaged both in, in the Arabic uh, Islamic and Arabic Christian uh, intellectual tradition, as well as in the Latin Christian intellectual tradition. Um, and then after that, I worked for a number of years, uh, especially on the translation of the Quran into Latin and uh, the circulation of it in Europe, both in Latin and in Arabic. Uh, the people who read it, uh, what they did with it, uh, what we can learn about the process of engaging with the Latin text by looking closely at at how people translated it, and then by how people uh, responded to it, especially uh, by looking at marginalia in the manuscripts in which it circulated, which uh, and those marginal notes often tell us a great deal about, as surprising things about. Um, how the Latin world engaged with the Quran. Certainly, as we would expect, they were often hostile uh, to it, and we have lots of evidence of that. But um, there's evidence as well of, of a much more complex kind of engagement that, that often involved very close um, philological reading of the text, very deep interest in the meaning of words and the, the meaning of, of very difficult phrases in the Quran. And um, we have lots of evidence of, of Latin Christian translators seeking out um, Muslim authorities or Muslim authoritative texts to help answer those questions. Um, and we also find that the Quran um, in its Latin form uh, could be um, uh, it c- could be uh, presented to its readers as a beautiful book with beautiful gold leaf and and illumination, uh, a book that was meant to so show off one's sophistication and and uh, exotic interests to fellow wealthy uh, book collecting friends. Uh, so my work has, has focused all the way along on these the the evidence that. We have of really close encounters between Islam and Christianity and now Judaism um, by intellectuals. Uh, and uh, so I'll stop there.
1: Well, th- thank you very much to both of you. So your work is quite diverse in many ways, but also I saw from your, from while you were speaking, a lot of connections, um, especially geographically, but also culturally and politically. Um, and we should mention that there is a third author of the book, uh, Dr. Mark Mayerson, a professor in, in the Department of History and the Center for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto uh, that wasn't able to be with us today. Which leads me to my next question. How did the three of you come together to write this book? How did that happen?
0: Well, I, I can maybe say a few things about the earliest uh, discussions of this Mark Meyerson and I who both overlapped as graduate students in Toronto um, started talking about this maybe twenty years ago um, we had conversations we'd meet up at conferences or other places and say we you know we had we ought to write a book about the Mediterranean and um, so we we had discussions over the years of it but nothing really happened until Brian uh, said he had the same interest, and Brian really lit a fuse under us and got us moving on it about uh, seven, eight years ago. Um, and uh, then, and and I think a key part of it was that we'd all known each other a long time; we we got along well, and all of that made it much easier uh, to contemplate uh, a, a co-authored book. And um, so uh, that, that's the early those are the earliest origins of it, but Brian can probably say more.
2: Yeah, I would I would say uh, uh, I didn't realize you and Mark had been talking about it for so long. Mark and I had been sort of banning about the idea of doing some kind of collaboration because our interests are are quite complementary. Uh, and so we were we were talking about this, and then, lo and behold, out of the blue, and it was about eight or nine years ago, I got a call from an acquisitions editor at one of these big textbook producing publishers. And uh, she said, uh, are you interested in maybe doing a book on the Mediterranean? And it was like, the moment had come. And so uh, I got in touch with 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 Mark and Tom. And that's what really got us going. And, and, you know, we set about on this long process of collaboration. Uh, we ended up uh, not publishing with that uh, original publisher, but instead moving the book to uh, the University of California Press, which we're really happy about. It's been a great experience right down the line in terms of uh, the uh, the scholarly freedom that they gave us to set up the book uh, as we wanted it. And... Uh, really, they, they absolutely came through in producing the book. What we have is the textbook and the reader. The textbook alone has, I think, over 120 maps and images, and they went all color on those. But what really impresses me about the way they came through on this, the press, is that uh, despite the really uh, you know high level of production they put into it, we've managed to keep the price down to students. So I think last time i looked for the 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 reader and the textbook the textbook's almost 500 pages long uh i think they're they're each like less than 40 bucks which uh you know wouldn't have happened had we stayed with the original publisher i don't think it would have been one of these you know glossy brick-like books that cost an arm and a leg so it's been a really great uh experience uh In every way, uh, particularly uh, intellectually, uh, getting to collaborate so closely with uh, Tom and Mark, both of whom are are scholars, you know, that I've long admired. uh, So it's
0: been really wonderful. The admiration is mutual. And uh, uh, yeah, the collaboration has been really fun.
1: That's excellent. Yes. And, And you guys are all located in different geographical locations, if I'm correct, right?
2: Yeah, so trauma, that must have been older. And well, originally uh, you were at Tennessee, Tom, right? And then uh, then you moved to Notre Dame over the course of this. But I, I have to say one thing we did, and I don't know if this is typical of collaborations, but you know, sometimes when people collaborate on books, people are assigned chapters. They go off and write their chapters and then they bring it together. That's not what we did. We had regular in-person meetings, uh, sometimes for up to a, a week, I think where we would get together, we would hothouse, and we would read out loud everything we had written to each other. And so it was, uh, you know, an intensely interactive collaborative process. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, unlike many books that are collections of contributions, you know, uh, there's a sort of consistency in the authorial voice and the perspective in the book, which which you know is 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 I think you know really gratifying to us.
1: That is true. Yes, the books it's pretty seemingly through from the beginning to the end. And I think you kind of need that for a textbook, right? Uh, if it was a bunch of different authors putting their contribution in, it will have had a different um, vibe and a different uh, way of uh, starting the book. But this is from the beginning to the end, a seamless. Transition from chapter to chapter. So I think uh, the collaboration, as, as you mentioned, shows uh, when you read the book. Um, so The Sea in the Middle is uh, a 15-chapter textbook. And as the book says, it's meant for classroom use uh, centered on the Mediterranean. And the role played by peoples and cultures from Africa, Asia, and Europe, um, you know, in, in a time when religions such as Chris, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism both engaged with each other, um, collaborated, but also uh, had various conflicts as well. Um, so, my um, immediate question from your previous conversation is Did you see any positives or, or negatives or areas of growth from being a textbook and do you think there is there is this there is a, a, something that you got more out of it from being a textbook instead of just a, a regular um, manuscript? Well, well, yeah, yeah. I,
0: I think absolutely I think uh, Brian had done uh, writing for a broader market than just academics but Mark and I had not really uh, before we did this textbook. And uh, it was a really interesting experience to have to transition from the way we write for other scholars to the way we write for a a much broader uh, uh, audience. And uh, it was uh, both challenging and also uh, kind of enthralling to do this. Uh, Writing worked uh, in some ways much differently from how it does uh, when we're doing our ordinary stuff. And I think that made us uh, think a lot harder about what what do we really need to say about the M- Mediterranean? Because you, even though the book is 500 pages long, um, you know, there's no way to even come close to covering everything. And having to not only keep it within 500 pages, but to keep it accessible to undergraduates, I think really forced us to. Um, to hone in on what were the really important things we wanted to say in this book. So I think, yeah, for me at least it was a very much a, a kind of a scholarly growing experience. Well there's a there's a fine balance between, you know, this
2: is the challenge, right? When you're writing a book like this or, or, or a trade book, which, as Tom says, I've done a couple, uh, you know, you have to make it accessible. You have to uh, present, uh, you know, your subject in such a way that people with very little background, and in the case of a textbook, sometimes very little interest, can, <laughs> can get into your work. But really the challenge for us, I think particularly in this, because of the nature of Mediterranean studies, which is not this sort of established narrative, which is, you know, very neat. It's very messy. We have to integrate, uh, you know, African, Middle Eastern, European history, Christianity, Islam and Judaism. And a lot of the beauty and importance of Mediterranean studies and Mediterranean history lies in the nuances and ambiguities. So we really kind of had to tread a tightrope, I mean, to, you know, to hit all the sort of major things, but, you know, without losing the beauty of it. And I think we managed it, you know, because we we often approached what traditional narratives hit head on. We often approach them obliquely. I'll just give you an example. We don't have a chapter on the Crusades. There's a lot about the Crusades in the book, but we don't have a chapter on them. Right. It's just another episode in this grander process of Mediterranean history, which you can approach in all kinds of ways, uh, you know, including, you know, the traditional Christianity versus Islam, uh, you know, sort of uh, way. But, uh, you know, so this is what we were trying to do. Look at how the structure of history and, and get in uh, to these canonical moments, but, but kind of obliquely sideways a little bit. So you can see the larger patterns that they fit into,
1: right? And and that's something that you know other um, books that talk about the Mediterranean and the West. And, and my next question is 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 about your definition of what West is. Um, you know, the Crusades, for example, as you mentioned, is a big part of it, and especially in courses. Uh, I just finished grad school, and you know, the Crusades it's it's a big thing of European history, um, and the history of of the West in whatever sense you you want to say it so in in the introduction uh you mentioned that um this is a new book about the understanding of the origins of the modern west and you defined west meaning the cultures and societies stretching west from the indus to the atlantic and from sub-saharan africa to the baltic talk to me a little more about the west who came why this new definition, or if it's not new, why this new nuanced definition of uh, what West is?
0: Well, I think uh, for myself, uh, I think uh, uh, thinking about the West as, for one thing, focused around the Mediterranean um, helped explain to me many of the things that I'd been a little baffled about uh, when I first studied medieval history a long time ago. Um, things like, for example, every, every textbook at that period had a little bit to say about this translation movement that happened in Iberia, whereby all of this Arabic material uh, made its way into Europe. And I remember reading about that and thinking, what? There's a big story here. And we're only being told it. And it's like it's being told to us from offstage. Uh, The main stuff is always going on in in England and France and Germany and northern Italy. But all of this transformative uh, scientific and philosophical medical uh, material comes into Europe and transforms it. I mean, one learned that Aquinas uh, uh, um, used all of this new material extensively in his work. And yet it's only mentioned in the textbook as an aside almost. And uh, so for me, uh, it made much more sense to think of a Mediterranean as a whole, because you could tell that whole story, that whole fascinating story, which really begins in the East with uh, early Arab Islamic civilization um, doing the same thing with with Greek uh, philosophy and science and medicine. Important leaders uh, deciding that uh, we really need this Hellenistic material, and we're going to translate it, and we're going to hire people to translate it into Arabic for us, and and that sets off a gigantic explosion of Arabic science and philosophical thought that that didn't just preserve this material; it built on it enormously, and then you can connect it back to uh, the the forward rather to. The Iberian translation movement, which then brought that stuff to Western Europe. And that gives you, among other things, a really different perspective on what the Middle Ages is. The Middle Ages, in some ways, is not built around, in many ways, is not built around England, France, and Germany, and Northern Italy. It's, uh, it's built around this wide, abundant set of connections between civilizations all the way around the Mediterranean. Um, so th- that's that's sort of how how uh, I see it from the point of view of thinking about the history of ideas and the history of books and and uh, and all of that. I'm sure Brian has uh, other things to say.
2: For for many good reasons, for a long time there's been sort of a a, a groundswell among scholars who are dissatisfied with uh, the established Eurocentric perspectives and narratives of pre-modern history. And, you know, people have been, you know, working to create histories that are not sort of distorted by that bias. Right. Now, you know, for the past century and a half, we might say the Anglo-European or the Anglo-American world has been sort of supreme politically and economically. So there's a there's a tendency to kind of read that backwards as you construct the historical narrative. And you construct a historical narrative that that gives this area a privileged position even in the past, which maybe it didn't have. And it's also quite self-reaffirming if you belong to one of those cultures, right? It sort of plugs you into this whole idea of manifest destiny. So, you know, in some ways we set out to, to uh, you know, slay the, the dragon of Eurocentrism. But, you know, our approach was not an activist approach in the sense that, you know, we weren't, dismantling a eurocentric narrative because it was necessarily, you know, uh bad, which it may well be, but simply because the data doesn't back it up. If you look at the sum of the data, right? If you dispense with your preconceptions about how history was shaped and where it was going, and you look at the data, it's extremely clear that at least until the 1400s the center of the action, I mean politically, intellectually, Economically, demographically, on the level of dynamism, of innovation, of contact, the center was this larger Mediterranean world, which we can say kind of extends a little bit eastward into, you know, what, what was called the Fertile Crescent before. So, you know, what we're looking at is a period from 650 to 1650, when essentially that that whole region, which is so central to the engine of of, of innovation and history, is really for all intents and purposes with a few exceptions completely under the domination of uh, abrahamic faiths christianity judaism and islam right and they all for all of their differences which are actually you know for the most part quite technical and rather subtle you know they have the same basic theological orientation they have a lot of the same cultural orientation Uh, uh, they develop a lot of the same Uh, social kind of structures. And what we see when we look across this Mediterranean world is not a world which is divided easily into, you know, as we see on some historical maps, you know, the red zone of Christianity and the green zone of Islam. We have Muslims, Christians, and Jews living in these societies uh, as kind of permanent citizens or inhabitants all across this, this world. And we have the linkages of politics and economics, which bring principalities of different religious identities into collaboration as often as they're brought into conflict. So, you know, I think from 650 and the sort of expansion of the Islamic world and the end of paganism, as it is, uh, as it were, in this, in this larger world, we get this new sort of, uh, these new societies and these new cultures emerging. Then at the other end, 1650, well, by this time, You know at least for europeans the world is opening up uh we have new kind of dynamics of colonialism new ideas of identity no longer is religious community the sort of the baseline identity that 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 marks your experience in the world now new things are emerging ideas of race nation and uh, you know, these are changing the way people see the world and see each other at the same time that the bottom is sw- slowly falling out of the Mediterranean economically. So this is where we get the 650 to 1650 and this idea of the West.
1: Thank you again. Yeah, you did answer my that was my next question. Why 650 to 1650? and it makes sense now um, that you're using this this unifying, um, cultural i could say uh mark to 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 work through this throughout this history out and again the 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 change of the term west especially when it comes to college courses where this book hopefully will be used in i think it's it's really beneficial to use um i personally find it that that way because we we're, we're looking at a world as you say and that will lead to my next question of integration instead of separation, um, especially in the Middle Ages where there's this misconception that everybody was lived in their own little hubs um, and they did not interact with each other. And your book p- proves that wrong 100%. <laughs> um, So a quick, I guess, footnote into that to continue is how integrated was the Mediterranean um, within these geographical and cultural borders? Because I think that's a question that many people ask, especially um, nowadays when when we have this new approach to history, um, especially West history. So, why can you tell us about the integration? How integrated was the Mediterranean with with all of these cultures and different peoples coming together around this geographical feature of the sea in the middle?
0: Well, one one way to think about it is, uh, Brian has already mentioned that uh, to a substantial degree, uh, the Mediterranean world is unified under uh, these Abrahamic religions, which uh, are in a lot of ways very similar indeed. Uh, I in the book uh, we use the term uh, a scriptural monotheism. Each one of them was a monotheistic tradition. Each one believed that that God uh, communicated with people through a holy book, and their holy books overlapped with each other and uh, had the same characters. And you know, at least for the Christians, eighty percent of their Bible is the Jewish Bible, um, and. Um, and in addition to that, uh, that scriptural monotheism that unites the whole region, uh, there is a long philosophical and scientific tradition that unites it as well. So, in the early middle in the early Middle Ages, if you scratch um, a, a scholar or an intellectual, uh, you will find that he or she, especially she, in the Islamic world. Um, it has very strong and Neoplatonic uh, influences on what they do. They're, that's sort of the standard view of the cosmos is rooted deeply in Neoplatonism. And by the later Middle Ages, um, you scratch an intellectual, and, and many of them have become Aristotelian in, as their primary kind of scientific uh, orientation. And that doesn't matter whether we're talking about somebody in Baghdad or somebody in Cordoba, or somebody in, in Paris uh, by the time we get into the 13th century. And uh, in addition to that, um, there's all kinds of evidence that these people liked the same kinds of stories, the same kinds of uh, of w- wondrous tales. Um, and we know this because there are a whole series of, of um collections of, of, um, of stories, many of them originating in the East, like the famous Kalila Wadimna uh, that were translated into Hebrew, into a number of different Christian languages circulated everywhere. So at the level of the intellectual and cultural world, uh, despite, you know, there are real differences, there are linguistic differences, these pe- people held on to their, their, their uh, native languages, they're still participating very heavily in the same sort of cultural and intellectual matrix.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is me being a, a dilettante in, in terms of uh, Tom's area of study, but, you know, I always like to point out to my students kind of the way that uh, Aristotelianism spread in the Middle Ages, right? So we have, we have Muslim thinkers in the Abbasid Caliphate, who are picking up strands of Aristotle, presumably from, you know, uh, Christian monks and so on and so forth. And they develop uh, Aristotelian thought in such a way that it seems to work with the scriptural monotheism of Islam, right? And as they develop that, Jewish thinkers and Christian thinkers take notice and quite unabashedly uh, kind of borrow from it. So we have a philosopher like Ibn Rushd in Cordoba, the commentator, as he was known in uh, medieval Europe, and who presents this, uh, this sort of uh, Aristotelianized monotheism. And someone like Moses Maimonides uh, can be inspired by that and, uh, you know, engage Judaism in the same way. And then someone like St. Thomas Aquinas or the Legion of Latin Averroists uh, can do the same thing with Christianity. So, you know, we have to be very careful because we're trained to see these differences that did not necessarily always appear to be differences to the people involved. So, you know, I'm guessing, and Tom can correct me, that in many ways, uh, a a Christian Aristotelian, a Muslim Aristotelian, and a Jewish Aristotelian, it sounds like a joke, they don't walk into a bar, uh, they would see themselves as having, in many ways, more in common with themselves than, say, Neoplatonists of their own religion, and and vice versa. So, you know, there are lots of cross-cutting modes of identity, political, intellectual, social, based on the locale where you live, who you are, what you do, that, that, that are not fractured necessarily by religious identity. So we're trained to perceive a society as divided into Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and these societies were in many important ways but that's not how people were thinking all the time. And usually, most of the time, they weren't thinking in that way. And this is why there was such a profound integration, not only on the intellectual level, but on the social level, the economic level, the political level. Look, when you can have a Christian king writing to a Muslim king and addressing him as his friend Mm -hmm. and saying, I'm king by the grace of God, and you are king by grace of that same God, okay? That shows that there are commonalities that absolutely override these differences. Now, the next day, the Christian king might be on crusade against the Muslim king, in which case he's an infidel. But, you know, that's that's the kind of that's what makes this world so fascinating.
1: Right, right. And, and complicated, too. And, and it's it's. It's mesmerizing in many ways seeing a book come out from this, from this region and this uh, time frame, but also ge- the geographical location in general, because there's so much going on, right? Um, and I assume, I guess, I guess this could be a question as well, like how hard was it to choose what stays and what doesn't? Um, I, I assume that process was rough
2: there's such a richness of anecdotes and characters and, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, and, and artifacts and objects, Tom.
0: Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's uh, really, I'm, I'm sure all three of us feel like that in some ways we've only skimmed the surface, despite the fact that, uh, the book has, uh, I think, uh, really an enormous amount of, of detailed examples, um, but th- there is, and for every every area that we treated in every period, there is there are another twenty or thirty interesting examples that one kind of could have uh, offered, and and then of course there are things that we had to decide. Um, we couldn't treat in much detail. So uh, I think an example is um, the European Reformation um, gets a much, um, gets much less, uh, 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 many fewer columns, we'll put it that way, uh, than it would in the standard Western civilization textbook. Because from the point of view of of the Mediterranean, This looks like um, an argument among Christians who otherwise are speaking the same languages and participating in the same geopolitical realities. And uh, it doesn't look like this uh, sort of earth shattering event the way it's usually treated when we talk about the history of the West under the older model. Now, the Reformation is fascinating, and I don't want to Deny that, um, and uh, there are all kinds of interesting things that we could have said about it. But from the point of view of the Mediterranean, it just doesn't look as as uh, like as uh, sizable an event uh, as it would otherwise.
2: So what I found really interesting and gratifying was that now I've I've actually taught the book. I taught the book as an undergraduate textbook and as a graduate textbook uh, last semester from the from the galley proofs. But you know, I was always worried that you know, what you'd have to do to teach this revisionary vision of the history of the West was first teach the canon, right, the established narrative, and then tear it down, right? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're doing because of, you know, who we are and how old we are and how we were trained, right? We started out with with the canonical view of Western history, and we've, we've kind of disassembled it and put it back together in a different way. But what I found is that that the students of today, they're not like us they live in a different world they live in a world where they intuitively understand ambiguities and uh, and multiple identities and they're not they're not burdened you know maybe this is a sad comment on on the. US high school system but they're not burdened with a really firm idea of what Western history in the Middle Ages looks like anyways. So when we kind of when we give what some might say is short shrift to something like the Reformation that a Europeanist might, you know, think, oh, my God, this is a terrible omission. You know, our students don't have that expectation. And I found that they came to the material really readily and really intuitively, despite its complexity, because it really resonated with their own experiences. A lot of them have hyphenated names and nationalities. A lot of them come from families which are have, have different ethnic or, 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 or religious backgrounds. So this is not the world of nineteen seventy anymore in terms of our students and society. So, you know, I really feel well, we wrote the book, but I really feel like this is kind of this is the time for this book. I think if it had come out uh, fifty years ago or forty years ago, it, it it would have been, you know, laughed off the shelves. But now from our perspective today, it makes sense both on an intellectual level, but also on an intuitive level. I think it speaks to students.
0: Our our co-author, Mark Meyerson, uh, who teaches at the University of Toronto, which is an an extraordinarily diverse university, um, is fond of saying that this is the Middle Ages that his students are really interested in Mm -hmm. because their experience of a... Uh, kind of a a global, multi-religious, multi-cultural, but still connected world um, makes them very receptive right away to this vision of the the Mediterranean in the Middle Ages because it seems recognizable and it seems relevant uh, as well, where um, certain aspects of the older narrative um, just don't don't play as well with our students uh, and I think we also all agree that it's a vision that we felt very important um, that it be presented to a broad audience because uh, it's it's the one that is current with scholarship um, and uh, it's also one that is very relevant to the present as well because we live in this world of of um, All kinds of people wanting to say essentialist things about the nature of Muslims or the nature of Islam or the nature of religious conflict um, based on very little knowledge uh, of it. And the Mediterranean in the Middle Ages is an amazing laboratory to really look at the uh, experiences of of, uh, interreligious communities, uh, mixed communities what the possibilities are, what what the dangers are. Um, you, you can really get a lot of lived experience out of it.
2: Yeah, what it tells us, too, is that, you know, uh, modernity, uh, you know, for all its pros and cons, is not the, uh, the product of a single tradition or mm-hmm. it's not preordained and that really when you look at the pre-modern period, that broad period of 650 to 1650, you can see how it happened because all of these different communities and groups and religious cultures were participating in this project. And I think one of the lessons from history, and this is something that uh, Jared Diamond has pointed out in his work is that, is that isolation doesn't lead to purity. It leads to decline. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you look at the Mediterranean, this uh, Uber connected world, you know, accessing these three different continental hinterlands, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, with all their resources, cultures, peoples, experiences, and they're all coming together within this Abrahamic culture, which gives them a framework for understanding each other and communicating with each other and hating each other. I mean, we're people, right? Uh, You know, this this is what brings it together and lends it this cohesion that, you know, other regions like Europe in the Middle Ages didn't necessarily have. Okay, if you go from the south of Italy, if you go from Sicily to Norway in the year 1000, right, or you can go from Sicily to Byzantium to Cairo, which is going to seem more similar? Right? The European side or the Mediterranean side? It's the Mediterranean. So, you know, you dispense with your your preconceptions and your historical biases, and you let the data talk. And this is what this is what the this is what the data says
1: wow yeah yeah it's oh man <laughs> so much to unpack in in this short uh, few few minutes uh i guess what stands out to me is that with this new approach to studying the west or the mediterranean or history in general um we see so many more commonalities with us and as you said brian i'm so glad to hear that this has been tested in in the classroom and students actually do see more connections right because they
2: loved it On, honestly honestly uh in terms of teaching evaluations best evals i've ever had oh
1: that's great <laughs> yeah
2: yeah it's really gratifying to see that like i said i think it's a moment that's come because i think it talks to talks to to, to, to us today
1: Right, right, and we see so much. We don't see the past as indifferent from us in many ways. That's how I see it as well. We see it as we we can associate with these people better. Um, I think how history happened in in the years past is, you know, it's this narrative of, uh, as you said, isolation and you know wars and cultures that lived independent from each other, and there, there isn't a lot of association. And especially in today's world, where it's Similar, if I can say, to the Mediterranean world from back from that time, so many similarities. Um, when you study it, and that's that's really interesting to hear how today's students, as you said, uh, see this from a different pr- perspective.
2: Yeah, I would say today's scholars, too. I mean, there's a lot of people, right? Uh, you know, my my project, the Mediterranean seminar, started out because. My colleague, Sharon Kinoshita, who is a historian or a scholar of medieval French literature, and myself, a social and economic historian, were really unhappy with the established paradigms of medieval history. Right. And Mm -hmm. so this is how we began our exploration of the Mediterranean as a framework. But, you know, we weren't the only ones. It's like any, you know, innovation happens if we look through history, whether it's technological, religious, ideological innovation. It happens when there's a lot of people who are thinking the same thing. And the same thing is the old system doesn't work. We've got to explore something new. And so I really think this isn't about Tom and Mark and I or or myself and Sharon only. I think that that this book is really good, I think, because uh, its its moment has come. It is reflecting a movement which has already taken place in the minds of a lot of scholars, particularly of our generation and and younger and that there's been a hunger to have the the tools to be able to teach it because it's extremely challenging to teach this you really have to you know go out on on a limb and you know that's our hope that we give them the package the tools so that they can they can take it and they can they can teach this extremely complex and fascinating history with confidence so that's right. that's that's what we're, we're we're trying to accomplish essentially
1: Right, right, and I'm I'm happy you mentioned the Mediterranean Seminar, um, because um, when was it? When was the Mediterranean Seminar established? What we year? St-
2: we started in 2007, and now we've got nearly 2,000 affiliates uh, in over 40 42 countries. We organize a lot of activities, three uh, workshops per year that tour around North America. And we did our last one in, in Israel in the summer and we've done stuff in Europe. So it's it's really, again, it's representative not of something that we're doing, but of a will on the part of a lot of scholars to, to open up these new, absolutely fascinating perspectives.
1: Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So my question is, I guess, uh, so th- how do you see the, the medieval Mediterranean or the Mediterranean field uh, because your book, I I believe you know, it, it fills many gaps or, or it, it supplements a lot of the things that that field is trying to pursue uh, when it comes to historical ed- education. Where do you see this going into the
0: future? Well, I guess I I guess I would say that um, we we've, we've always been kind of pragmatic about it. No, uh, none of us have. Uh, sort of uh, deeply held uh, theoretical visions of what the Mediterranean is that, that we're, we're trying to advance. We, we've always agreed that um, that the Mediterranean is just one way to look at history uh, of the past. And it's, it's a really good time to look at that framework and, and be guided by that framework uh, and I assume that my, my belief is that that's going to be true for quite a long time. I don't think this is a passing fad at all. I think, in fact, most scholars I know working, uh, and, I, and I know a lot of them working on Northern European matters, whether that's, it's Northern European history in the Middle Ages or literature or philosophy, Um they uh, basically are in agreement that the Mediterranean world is uh, kind of the wave of the future, and they need to begin connecting their own work somehow to that that framework. So I think there's a lot of uh, future in uh, Mediterranean history and Mediterranean studies, but I think there there may well come a day when it ceases to be as useful uh, as some other framework, and maybe that framework will be global. Um, history, um, global, medi- global medieval history, uh, but I think for the moment, there's so much richness in the medieval Mediterranean, so many things that have scarcely been examined. Medieval North Africa, for example, j- just really way, way, way understudied. Uh, so I think, I think there's a lot of future in it, but I don't think it's, it's going to be a, any more of a permanent framework than the earlier one.
2: Yeah, you know, I would I would say, you know, from my perspective, and uh, echoing Tom, the more perspectives, the better, you know, we're not flag waving uh, Mediterraneanists, as I've heard some people refer to scholars as, you know, who, who you know, disagree that you can use Europe as a frame of reference. It's a perfectly excellent frame of reference for certain questions. In other questions, it's not so good. Uh, but, you know, when we establish this narrative and, you know. I think it, it comes out in the sort of the sort of amorphous quality of, of 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 the book in in a way. We weren't setting out to foreclose on other perspectives or narratives, right? We don't establish, you know, the the dialectical links that led us from six fifty to sixteen fifty. Our goal is to open up perspectives, you know, to this, as Tom points out, this 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 rich terrain which is willing to be you know, explore these 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 fields that are waiting to be tilled. Uh, you know, we're not paving them over with some new interpretation. And you know, just to get back to plugging the book, which is really important, you know, I found, I taught the book in the spring. And one of the things I used it for was like a straight up undergraduate survey course. And it was, of course, brilliant for that. But uh, the other thing I used it for was, You know, when you're doing graduate seminars now and with with the kind of shrinking populations of graduate programs, you want to attract people that are maybe outside of your field of specialization, but they come into a graduate seminar without having background on the period. And I had that experience in the spring when I was doing a a seminar on intersectionality and I wanted to look at the medieval Mediterranean. So basically, I use the textbook as a three week crash course. And that gave the students the kind of background that after we had gone through the book rather quickly, then we could talk about issues that were connected to this world. So I just want to point that out to the listeners that, you know, it it kind of has this dual purpose. And of course, as a scholar, you can read the book anyways, you know, and hopefully it'll inform your research. But you can use it as as a kind of straight up course book or you can use it as that kind of to prime the motor of, of a seminar you want to teach whether it's on islamic christian or jewish history or mediterranean history or medieval history you know
1: right and and i think it does that brilliantly especially as as you mentioned uh, scholars re- re- reading these and finding out examples that they did not know before it might have slipped through their minds so i think it does that great and um I, I'm fascinated with maps, and I, I I can say that I was very happy to see so many amazing maps all over the book.
2: Did you Did um, you notice what's missing on the maps? What's missing on the maps? There's no lines.
1: There's no lines. Right, right. It's uh, we especially did,
2: we did that on countries. purpose because you can't draw lines. Right.
1: <laughs> right right I, I i i did not catch that but that's i'll have to go back and look no at them again now. on the
2: maps you know it's never you're now leaving christian territory for the world of islam you know oh,
1: man now i <laughs> i just wow i know we're running up on time and i want to keep learning from you and discussing with you for much more but we have time limits uh oh man whoo so much so Again, I've taken a lot of your time, and I would like to ask you one last question before you go. Um, What are you up to nowadays, and do you have any new projects that you're working on?
0: Tom, you want to start? Yeah, uh, I've been working for some years uh, on um, a very very remarkable but very Mediterranean figure named uh, Ramon Marti, who was a Dominican scholar in the 13th century in Iberia, um, who knew Arabic and per- Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic all extraordinarily well, and used them in his own works that were written uh, both against Islam and Judaism, but primarily against Judaism. And um, and I'm I'm sort of trying to ex- figure out, among other things, why he's so interested, so much more interested in in, in refuting Judaism than he is Islam. Even though Islam is obviously, it in some ways, seems like a much much bigger threat, um, so that's what I'm working on. Uh, hopefully, uh, have a book out on that in sometime in the next three or four years.
2: Uh, as for me, aside from you know chipping away in the archives as I as I do and as I love to do, I've got two big projects. One, I'm hoping to finish up this academic year, which I've been working on for about twenty years, which presents a kind of uh, a model for uh, understanding uh, uh, ethno-religious identity in diverse societies uh, in the medieval Mediterranean. So it's not really a history, it's more, I guess, a work of historical sociology, which provides you with a sort of frame for understanding and interpreting uh, what seem at first blush to be paradoxical or nonsensical events. So it turns the exceptions, it gives the exceptions some rules. But the other, my next project is something which is actually kind of close to what Tom's working on. Uh, I'm planning on doing a a book about the 13th century uh, based on uh, a a king of Aragon whose name was James the Conqueror and who is significant for a number of reasons. Uh, One, he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of the 13th century. He's connected to everything. Cathars, Templars, Papacy, Crusades, Jewish Disputations, you name it, he's there. He like pops up in in every theme, you know. Uh, But the other thing is, the guy wrote his own biography. He wrote an autobiography in Catalan. So one of the first royal biographies in Europe and in the vernacular. And let me tell you, you know, he ruled for like 70 years. He inherited the throne when he was seven, took the crown when he was 13, and abdicated when he was like, uh, I don't know, 72 or something. So this is one super interesting character that sort of epitomizes all of the messy complexity of the 13th century and of the Christian Muslim Jewish Mediterranean. So I'm really happy to start working on that uh, in the fall. And that's it for me.
1: So that sounds exciting. And best of luck to both of you for whatever your next projects and whatever is coming up next. Uh, I should mention that there is a companion also to the sea in the middle uh, called Texts from the Middle, which uh, I assume uh, adds more to this amazing uh, narrative that you have built. And again, I wish I had more time to discuss even more with you, but uh, our audience can check those two books out. Um, again, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and take care. Thank,
0: thank you very much. Thank you, thank
2: you for having us. Conversation. Let me just add, if anyone's interested, you can join the Mediterranean Seminar for free. Just go on our webpage, MediterraneanSeminar.org.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Okay. Thank you.